problems They go to the doctor here Try to solve them Anyway look at Hello, my name is Brett Stewart, and welcome to the second episode of Exploring the Blues in Chicago, a podcast dedicated to delving deep into the wonderful tradition of Chicago blues, both old and new. Now, this episode is focused largely around the independent record label, and you are going to hear a short clip here in the beginning of me sitting down with Keith Dixon. Keith Dixon is the grandson of Willie Dixon, who, of course, performed on a whole slew of chess records here in the city, and furthermore, had a prolific solo career of his own with countless hits. Keith now helps run the Blues Heaven Foundation, which is down at 2120 South Michigan Avenue here in Chicago, which is the original place of Chess Records, and you can go down there and take a tour with Keith or with anybody that works there and learn about the studio. Go on down there. It's very much worth your time. It is one of the hidden jewels of blues here in Chicago. But I talked with Keith for a couple minutes, and we had a great conversation. And then I also sat down with Bruce Iglauer. Uh, Bruce Iglauer is the founder of Alligator Records. Now, this was a special interview for me, I must say. I had been listening to records that Bruce had either put out on Alligator or produced on Alligator ever since I was a young kid. I didn't even know I was listening to records that Bruce had produced. And he has produced a bevy of those records, almost 200 of those records, and a catalog of over 300 albums, ranging from Electric Chicago Blues to Blues Rock, uh, to West Coast Jump Blues, all sorts of wonderful stuff in the Alligator Records catalog. And in my long conversation with Bruce, we didn't just talk about independent labels. We also talked about some of the history of blues in Chicago, some of the trials and tribulations of the genre here in the city, and furthermore, what to look forward to in the future. But first, let's start off with a moment with Keith Dixon. It makes no difference. Oh, and this was an impromptu recording down at the Blues Heaven Foundation that actually just happened when I was down there and I happened to meet Keith, so I pulled out my cell phone to record our conversation. Uh, It's cleaned up pretty nicely, but enjoy the conversation. It's wonderful, and the rest of our interviews are all in the studio. talking about the importance of the independent label in the launch of music because we look at stuff like your grandfather's label with chess records we look at stuff like stack stuff like motown these indie labels allowed these artists to flourish do you think i mean how important was it that someone like your grandfather was giving a place for these young guys to come in and make this music here well when it comes to the independent labels it's very important because the major labels aren't going out looking for the next up-and-coming artist. They they pump out artists by, oh, we have writers, we want this person's image to look like this, but the independent labels are working with the people who are actually out in the field working. So when it comes down to Chess, Sun, VJ, all these labels, if one of these labels weren't around, there's a lot of music missing. VJ Records was right across the street from us where the Beatles actually came and cut their teeth and did their early blues stuff. So when it comes down to the independent labels, those are probably more important than the major labels because 
most of the artists that are signed to the major labels today started off on the independent labels and that's where most people found out about them right and if we look at like how do i say it? so if we look at these labels and the people they were signing especially black artists in, in the 50s and onward their music was often segregated to different charts mm -hmm. it wasn't on the rock charts it was on the blue the r b charts yeah. right yeah so didn't chess help overcome that barrier and get onto mainstream charts somewhat and that's because chess was around before most of the other indie labels and right. chess, chess was setting up to become the major label themselves they had two pressing plants in walking distance from the building they had their own radio station in walking distance from the building so when you start thinking of it from that point, nobody's performing in Soldier Field during that time period. Everybody's playing in bars and nightclubs. Leonard Field owned about 15 different clubs in Chicago. They actually own liquor stores. They have a developmental studio. So now you're looking at it from the point of they're setting up for the next big move. And most people don't understand that these artists and the artists here, Leonard and Phil Chess grew up poor. They don't care about any color of your skin you care about the color of money but they actually are they actually appreciate music for what it is it's music and they want everybody to enjoy the music so when it comes down to to changing changing what ended up happening from segregation and artists being played on the same label chess is probably one of the dominant companies that was looking at artists for artists and not for the color of their skin so is that one of the reasons it's important for you as a volunteer to keep your, your grandpa's legacy alive down here and keep you know people coming here and checking well, this music out? Well, the reason I'm happy to be out here, I, I was in music at one point, and I gave up on that after figuring out how many songs my grandfather had, but when it came down to actually, go, when it came down to me volunteering here, my grandmother asked me to come down and help. And before that, I had been coming down here as a kid, but... I wanted to really help artists understand how to be successful because most artists don't understand how to be successful. Most of them think it's radio, tour, and hit record. No, it's everything that goes on behind the scenes from knowing your entire crew to booking your own shows because if you don't book your shows and you have a manager that does it, they take 20% of whatever they charge to book you. Right. Off the top. Before anyone else gets paid, 20% goes to your manager. And some managers make 30%. So once it comes down to actually knowing the business, I really want artists to understand you can be successful. You don't have to be the front person to make make a career out of this and make it into where you can support yourself. Most people get told, oh, if you're not singing, if you're not touring, if you're not performing, you're not making any money. That's not true. If you're actually, if you actually have your own publishing, if you own your own publishing, you're making a lot of money. If you own the masters and you're publishing, you don't really even need to tour. You can probably sit at home on the couch and go to your mailbox and pull out a check for $2 million and never have to worry about anything. But it's most artists don't understand how to make money. Most artists don't even know the difference between your masters and your publishing. So I'm here as a young kid just to make sure that when young kids do come in, they actually see, hey, if you don't know the business, it all started with Chess, with Sun, with Stacks, with Motown, and VJ and all the other companies, Muscle Shoals, if you don't know the business, you won't actually be successful in this field. You'll probably do better getting a regular, a regular nine to five.
Again, that was Keith Dixon, grandson of Willie Dixon. Be sure to go on down to the Blues Heaven Foundation at 2120 South Michigan Avenue here in the city of Chicago. Now let's tune into a conversation I had with Bruce Siglauer. Again, that is the founder of Alligator Records here in the city that has put out a whole slew of phenomenal Chicago blues records over the years. We talked for a long time, probably about three hours. So this is a selection of some of the better parts of our conversation that I think are representative of the main points that him and I were trying to talk about because we'd often get derailed and just fanboy about different music we loved and different ways of distributing music and all that good stuff. But now we're going to get into the meat of what we talked about. Check it out. What I wanted to talk about with you first was your upbringing, because you grew up in Michigan and Ohio, correct? Right. I was born in Ann Arbor. Uh, I spent my elementary school years in Grand Rapids and my junior high and high school years in a suburb of Cincinnati. Then I went to um, Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. So I was never living more than about 350 miles from Chicago. And I was circling Chicago the whole time, but I didn't know it. (laughs) And you were circling Chicago, but you weren't necessarily in areas that are blues heavy, would you say? Well, I certainly didn't know I was in areas that were blues heavy. Uh, When I lived in Cincinnati, I was no more than, suburb of Cincinnati, I was no more than six or eight miles from King Records, uh, where Freddie King and James Brown were recording, but I had no idea. So what turned you on the blues early on then? Was it in college? Because you did host a college radio show for a a point in time, correct? Right. Um, Well, I was a folky. You know, there was this sort of folk music boom in the first half of the 60s, and lots of people who bought acoustic guitars and had harmonicas and racks uh, and listened to, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary and Bob Dylan and and, uh, the Kingston Trio and a lot of commercial folk music. And I I was interested in that. And I did have my guitar and my my acoustic guitar and my harmonica in Iraq and I was actively bad okay uh, not just kind of bad really <laughs> did you ever bad. get better uh not much okay um uh, I have no apparent instrumental skills so I began going to folk music events and eventually uh I, I went to college in Appleton Wisconsin but my sister who was the smart one went to the University of Chicago and I found out in the beginning of, of, of 1966, when I was a freshman in college, that the University of Chicago had a folk festival in January. So I came down not really, <clears throat> excuse me, not really knowing what I was going to hear and not realizing that this was a festival of truly traditional music. And it wasn't going to be a festival of clean-cut people from uh, New York singing in beautiful harmonies. Sure. It was going to be a, a festival of people from Appalachia, you know, who are, have lost some teeth singing, you know, in in, in high uh, uh, mountain voices. And it was going to be black people from the South. And one of the black people from the South who was there was Mississippi Fred McDowell. I think I had heard his name and that was all. And when Fred started singing and playing at um, um, Idenoy's Hall uh, in at the University of Chicago, it was just like he reached out over 20 rows of seats and grabbed me by the collar and slapped me and said, wake up, wake up. This is for you, son. This is for you. And, and I was just 
completely struck by this music. Uh, I had, I had heard a little bit of blues, but very much blues done by white people from New York, you know. Um, so I knew what the traditional blues structures were, but I didn't know really anything about the culture. <clears throat> and I went home, I went, I'm sorry, I went back to Appleton, Wisconsin, and I ordered the one and only Mississippi Fred McDowell album on the Arhuli label out of Berkeley, California, at the one and only record shop. And it took them nine months to locate a copy of it. Our Hooli Records was that small. So I just remembered what he sounded like between January of 1966 and September of 1966 when I got the album. Wow. And you mentioned at this particular festival you came down and it wasn't necessarily the polished folky type stuff that you might hear out of New York and, and you know, Greenwich Village, but instead like that, you know, more rustic Appalachia type sound. Uh, isn't that also kind of a blues in its own way? Because essentially you have that that early country from Appalachia, which appealed to a lot of white people. And that was a kind of the white person's blues. And then you had down south a lot of the, you know, the like the, the black person's blues. Well, we're generalizing quite a bit. Sure, but sure. The question would be in my mind whether not whether that is a traditional music that evolved over years and came from uh, to some extent from the old country. All those things are true of right. both blues and Appalachian music, but the cultural function of the music because Appalachian people as much as they lived hard lives were not living oppressed lives that's very true very true blues was at least part of what blues was about was finding a way to throw off the the yoke of, I, corny the yoke of oppression the weight of oppression you know on 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 saturday night uh you know one of the reasons black preachers thought the blues was the devil's music is the people who stayed up and danced and and partied to the blues on saturday night probably didn't show up for church on sunday and when the collection plate was passed they didn't put anything in it so it was the competitors music uh, as much as so, if the devil was the competitor, then it was the devil's music. Uh, blues was a lot of blues was about what's called tension and release, a and Appalachian music tends to be more ballads and story songs, whereas mm -hmm. blues tends to be more first person music, music of I, I did this, I lived that, I had this bad relationship uh, or good relationship, right? Uh, one of the things that struck me about blues when I was first listening was how much it was stories that were people were telling of their own lives. And the, the Appalachian ballad tradition is more a third person tradition of, you know, the story of, of Gypsy Davy or, um, you know, or, um, or the, you know, the women who get murdered by their, their husbands or their lovers. Right. But less about, what was going on in the in the people's own lives. Now, it was still very much a folk music. It was still very much a music that people celebrated within their own communities and a way that those people bonded with each other. When I first came to Chicago and started going to blues bars, all of the blues bars were in the black neighborhoods, in the black community, I should say, because it wasn't always neighborhoods, um, in the, on the south side and the west side. And a lot of times you would find people in those clubs who grew up in the same parts of the South or even in the same towns in the South and had known each other down South before they came to Chicago. 
So there was a sense of bonding that those people had uh, where they were sharing their experiences and their lives together and kind of reinforcing the the value of each other's lives. Um, and I imagine that it would be the same thing if people got together to do a square dance in you know the hollers in sure. Kentucky. You said that you went to that festival in 1966, correct? Yes. So that would have been peak British invasion time or a couple years after. Did the British invasion have any impact on you moving toward the blues? Because in a way, the British almost introduced us to our own music. Uh, certainly, and I honor the you know the British musicians who did that. Uh, the answer is honestly pretty much not, but I was influenced by white people interpreting the blues and specifically by the Paul Butterfield Band. Okay. Now, in 1965, Electra Records, which was a uh, a folk music label that was beginning to become more of a pop label. It was before they had the doors and um, put out a sampler, a budget sampler called Folk Song 65. They put it out at the end of 1965 or maybe even in 66. And the first track was the only electric track on the record. Everything else was acoustic. And it was Born in Chicago by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. I had never heard anything like that. I had not heard any bands doing blues. I had not heard Amplified Harmonica. And I went out and bought the album and bought the East-West album uh, that was their their follow-up uh, and, and was very interested in, in that music. And that helped me discover real Chicago blues. Now, when I first discovered blues, I was still caught up in the, if you plug it in, it's not really folk music. It's not really traditional. One of those, you know, they didn't have amplifiers down there when they were picking cotton. <laughs> right. Um, and so it took me a little while to get used to the idea of a band performing this music. But Fairly quickly, I got swept up in in electric band music as versus acoustic solo music, though I still appreciated both. Because that was actually a sentiment a lot of folkies had, particularly since you were a folkie in those early years in college. Oh, I was very upset when Bob Dylan plugged in. Re- really? You were in the Pete Seeger band camp of <laughs> kind of, <laughs> very yeah. upset? Uh, I didn't spend time lying awake nights brooding about it. But mm-hmm. yes, I thought that he was kind of <laughs> turning his back on the people who had nurtured him and that he was going to become commercial now. Now, of course, he was selling plenty of records, which is being commercial right. when he was acoustic, but he did sell even more when he became electric. Right. Highway 61 and bringing it all back home. Exactly. Have essentially blues songs on them in part or blue, have heavy blues influence at our. Oh, absolutely. And, and he understood some things about blues for sure. And then, of course, he incorporated players from the Butterfield band in particular. Right. Exactly. He did. Now, when did you get your start at Delmark? I started after I discovered blues. I started buying every blues record I could get my hands on, which weren't very many. Uh, there were not a lot of blues LPs available then, uh, and certainly not so many in Appleton, Wisconsin. I, at some point in 1966, I picked up a folk music magazine. I was in Toronto, actually. I picked up a magazine called Hoot, and in it was a review of four or five new blues releases. And at the bottom of the review, it said, and if you're ever in Chicago and you want to hear this stuff in person, go to the Jazz Record Mart at 7 West Grand, and Bob Kester, the owner of Delmark Records, will take you out to the south side of the west side to hear this music in its own environment. And that imprinted into my brain. In the spring of 1969, when I was already doing the blues show on my college radio station, 
I convinced the Student Activities Committee to bring a blues band to Lawrence for the next fall. And I convinced them to let me find the band. And armed with no other piece of information other than the name of Bob Kester and the address of 7 West Grand, I got on a Greyhound bus, didn't own a car at the time, and came to Chicago and walked to this little grungy storefront and met Bob Kester and my life changed. Uh, as a result of that, he didn't actually take me out to hear music that night. He he just thought I was another one of those hippies, what he considered to be hippies, because he did have a lot of hair. Wasn't doing many drugs, but I did have a lot of hair. And um, he sent one of his employees to take me out, uh, who turned out to be John Fischel, who was the one of the uh, founders of the Ann Arbor Blues Festival, so a very important employee. Uh, but as I came back weekend after weekend, Bob eventually took me out himself and introduced me to Junior Wells and various other people and let me sleep on the couch at his at his apartment. Uh, and I was was just fascinated by this man. He seemed to know everything about blues and jazz. He had strong opinions about every record ever made. And he would literally, in his store, tell his customers not to buy certain records. You don't want that one. You don't want that Sunny State record. You want this Sunny State record. <laughs> and he would virtually refuse to sell them records he didn't believe in. Really? Um, wow. He would talk endlessly and about every subject in the world almost simultaneously. He'd move back and forth talking about politics. He'd be instructing his employees on how to correctly sweep the floor. He'd be talking about Big Joe Williams uh, coming up from Crawford, Mississippi, uh, and sleeping in the basement of the store, which he did. Uh, then he'd move to talking about the American uh, the uh, Association for the Advancement of Creative Music, AACM, the very uh, revolutionary freeform jazz players. Then he'd be talking about uh, New Orleans traditional jazz, then he'd be expounding about Castro and and U.S. relations with Cuba. And it went on like I'm talking now. It was sort of a continuous sentence. <laughs> uh, he never stopped. And he ruled the store from behind the counter. And how long after that until you started working at Delmark? Well, I, I was still draft eligible. So okay. I went down the next weekend, which was Thanksgiving weekend, to show Bob Kester my, in 69, to show Bob Kester my posters and tell him uh, how well the, the concert had, had gone. And that day I met Magic Sam in the basement at Delmark. And he died two days later. Um, <laughs> death has followed me around a lot. Um, in the first week of December was the draft lottery and I got a good number. Not that you'd ever remember your number 287. Uh, but, and I'm sure everybody who was in that lottery remembers his number. Uh, but I knew then that I was a free man. So I was finishing up, uh, some teacher, student teaching, uh, you know, with the thought of becoming a teacher. And I thought, I'm going to Chicago. So I went down the next weekend after the lottery and I was hinting around to Bob that I was going to come to Chicago and I'd love to get a job. And he offered me a job as the Delmark shipping clerk, part-time job, $30 a week. And I took it. So January 1st, 1970, I showed up at the Jazz Records, sorry, January 2nd, 
first was closed, um, showed up at the Jazz Record Mart and said, what do you want me to do? And my part-time job was from 9.15 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night. And I just found things to do all that time. I worked behind the counter at the store, packed boxes. I went to the pressing plant, picked things up. I unloaded trucks. Uh, I fielded phone calls, whatever needed to be done just to be there. How long were you doing that until Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers came around? Because that is the story, is that right? right? They, they Delmark turned them down and you wanted to record them? Well, in January of 1970... Weeks after I had moved here, okay, I went. I I had met Hound Dog. I had actually seen him sitting in when I had visited Chicago one time, and it was a disaster. His songs would start, nobody could find the beat. The songs would end. He'd tell an indecipherable joke. He'd be laughing at him uh, at his joke so hard you couldn't understand it anyway. He'd light a cigarette. He'd take a drag. He'd put the cigarette down. He'd start another song. The band wouldn't follow it. It would end. Repeat, repeat, repeat. So I thought this guy is just kind of a friendly, everybody likes him, he laughs a lot. So they let him, you know, sit in and play a song or two and it doesn't work. And, you know, he's he's kind of just a guy they laugh at or with. But I ran into him at Teresa's Lounge at 48th in Indiana, where Bob had taken me in, which was a key Southside Blues Club and the home of Junior Wells and often Buddy Guy. I ran into Hound Dog and he told me that he had a gig on Sunday afternoon at a place called Florence's. And he w- was able to give me the address. Now, Hound Dog had a very thick Mississippi accent, and he stammered when he talked. So he was really hard to understand. He told me about two gigs he had. I never figured out where the other gig was. Um, but Florence's I got, 54th place in Shields. And that Sunday, with some blues fans who were crashing from Sweden, who were crashing on my floor, I went down to... Florence's Lounge and walked in and fell in love with a band. I never saw three people have so much fun playing music. And I've never seen an audience have so much fun listening to it and dancing to it, which they did pretty, pretty consistently and drinking to it, which they did plenty of, uh, <laughs> as did the band. Uh, and I went back to, to Delmark raving about this band, but Bob had seen how dogs sitting in like I had thought he was a joke and of course, I was this new kid, so my uh, opinion of a band wasn't worth anything, uh, which it was a very understandable response on his part. Uh, and I just kept going back and kept talking to him about the band. And eventually, uh, in the later part of 1970, I decided that if he wasn't going to record them, I was. And I was going to show the guy who was like my father that I could do it better than dad. Uh, So some of it was to prove to my mentor that I knew what I was talking about and that I could, I didn't want to compete with him in that sense, but I did have something to prove. I had a little chip on my shoulder, if you like. Right. Um, But before that, I want to, I want to back up. Sure. So I arrived and went to work at Delmark on January 2nd. On January 9th, 1970, Bob Kester had a recording session. And he said to me, would you like to go along and be gopher? Now, the gopher is a guy who goes for things. You know, you you go for sandwiches. You go for uh, uh, getting a bottle of alcohol. You go for whatever's needed. So I was the gopher, and I arrived at the studio, Sound Studios on Michigan Avenue in what's now the Hard Rock Hotel. And there was Junior Wells. Uh, Lewis Myers, 
Buddy Guy, and Otis Spam. Wow. So we're talking about two of the best blues guitar players ever, perhaps the best blues piano player ever, and Junior, a, a wonderful harmonica player and an even better singer. Now, you'll notice that I didn't mention a bass player and a drummer. They were supposed to be there, but they weren't there. And time passed, and Junior was sitting on the piano bench with Span because Junior, in typical Junior fashion, had shown up with no prepared songs. None. And so he and, and Span were talking about old songs, and Span was remembering songs and playing bits of songs for him, and still no rhythm section. And finally, the phone rings, and it's Fred Beale, the famous Chicago drummer who's supposed to be on the session, and instead he's in jail, as is the bass player. They're together. They're at 51st and Wentworth on the south side, and they've been arrested because they were in a car with a driver with no license who ran a red light, and the cops arrested everybody in the car and locked up Bilo's drums. So Bob Kester sent me, who didn't know his way around Chicago at all, to the south side, luckily in the accompaniment of uh, Ralph, the uh, spare bartender from Teresa's Lounge, who had come with Junior, and with $100, and I bailed out the rhythm section and brought them back to the studio. <laughs> so if you've ever seen that record, on the last song, Junior convinces Buddy to sing as well. So they, they gather on the same mic, and they're singing, uh, uh, I'm so glad that trouble don't last always, which is a sort of, uh, they're throwing together lyrics from various songs, but especially from, from Guitar Slim. And... Uh, which was actually a song called The Story of My Life. And you can't see it in the photo, but just out of the corner of the photo is Bruce sitting on the floor. And I thought I had moved from Wisconsin to heaven. <laughs> now, did you produce the first Hound Dog Taylor record that you guys did for essentially the first Alligator record? Um, I produced it along with my good friend Wesley Race, who was another one of the white guys who hung out in the blues bars on the south and west sides. Wes had become very friendly with Hound Dog, and Hound Dog trusted him. So Wes, I, I was always the high-strung one. I was always the nervous one. Wes was a good old boy, and he just he called himself a, a Kansas hillbilly. And he was just a real blue-collar, straightforward, uh, happy partying, drinking, laughing guy whom the band, everybody loved Wes, and the band loved him, and he relaxed all of them. So he was the audience, and I was in the booth with the engineer, you know, being scared that things weren't going to sound right. Um, between the two of us, basically what we did was we made a list of every song we'd ever heard the band play, and then we prioritized the ones we wanted for the record, and we knew that they weren't going to want to play songs a bunch of times. We knew records were made by doing take after take. We knew that wasn't going to work. So we asked them to do each song once or twice and then go on to the next one. So basically, Wes was out there calling requests. And, and the band liked playing requests, especially from their own repertoire. So for them, it was just they were just putting on a show, except the audience was very small. Mm -hmm. uh, and once they got used to the idea that we didn't expect them to do something different from what they were doing every night of the week in various clubs on the South Side, they relaxed and they just did it. 
in the course of that, the two nights that we recorded, they actually did a couple of songs, three songs that neither of us had ever heard them do before. I, I think we just said, what else do you want to do? And they launched into another song. Um, and, and all three of those songs ended up on the, on that first record. One of them is called She's Gone. One of them is called 55th Street Boogie. Uh, and one of them is called, uh, I Just Can't Make It. And, and those were the first times we ever heard Hound Dog play those songs. I imagine it was pretty interesting for your first record behind the console like that with the engineer uh, to have a band as eclectic like th- as as them because there are other bands I would imagine that you've worked with or other artists that are laser focused in the studio and want more direction and probably have more of an idea of what they want to do in the studio versus just performing more carefree like they were. Well, Wes and I knew that this was not a band you could rehearse and expect to sure. get better. They were rehearsing every night. Right. With an audience, you know, in a club. We also knew that not only did we not read music, but they didn't read music. Mm-hmm. So there was nothing we were going to be able to tell them much musically, except we could sometimes say, you know, that maybe we could sing a lick that we had heard heard one of them play. And, you know, could you put that in a song? But at that point, I wasn't so much producing as recording. Okay. And... and Sometimes producing is just get the right people in the studio together and get out of the way. And that's pretty much what we did. Uh, we also, I, I couldn't afford multi-track recording, so we mixed it as we recorded it. Wow. Uh, so I knew what the band sounded like. I set them up just like they set up in a club, you know, how dog on the left, the drummer in the middle, Brewer Phillips. There was no bass player. It was a bass played on, on, a, on an electric guitar on the right. Um, and then set up the stereo picture inside the studio exactly the same way. Uh, we didn't worry about bleed because we weren't going to fix anything. We weren't going to overdub anything. Sure. We were going to punch in anything. So everything bled into every microphone. Uh, we actually didn't use headphones because they weren't used to headphones. So instead, we set up monitor speakers like you would get in a, in a better club, and you can hear a little bit of echo. So you could, then you can bleed the from the monitors as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, which is a slightly delayed, so you get more of a room feel. Wow. And we they they came in with their regular gear. So Hound Dog played a fifty dollar Kingston guitar. <laughs> they in those days made in Japan meant really cheap and crummy. Sure. He played a fifty dollar Kingston guitar uh, through a Sears Roebuck amplifier, uh, silver tone. Uh, it had six ten inch speakers. Two of them were cracked. And he played at full volume, which meant he was distorting the the amp like crazy plus the crack speakers, plus the guitar distorted like crazy. But that's what he was used to because he played loud because he was playing in clubs with no PA systems. Right. If the people in the back were going to hear him, he had to play at full volume. So there was plenty of distortion coming out of the amp, glorious distortion. Brewer Phillips played bass lines on his guitar with glorious distortion, and sometimes he played lead with glorious distortion. Uh, and we just, I just wanted it to sound just like I heard it in the club. So I gave sure. some direction to the engineer, but it was mostly make that louder, make that softer. Because the sounds were coming out of the amplifiers that I wanted to hear. So, oh, I remember he asked me, do you want any reverb? Do you want any echo? And I thought, that's that's a studio trick. I don't want that. <laughs> right. So I said no. But in fact, because the room was pretty live, there were a lot of hard surfaces, a linoleum floor, the music was bouncing around. So in fact, there was some echo. It was just natural. 
uh, and those monitor speakers helped with that as well. One of the particular artists I want to talk about on Alligator was someone that you actually put out their first record in 1975, and that's Coco Taylor, uh, which was you know essentially the queen of the blues. Well, not when I put out that record. She not wasn't. when you didn't, no. But throughout her tenure at Alligator, you put out nine records, mm-hmm. and eight of those were nominated for Grammys. I didn't realize it was eight, but good. Yeah, eight of them were nominated <laughs> why not for this, Grammys. Why not the ninth one? <laughs> and I, but I was looking back on, on Coco and... She was 47 when you signed her, so. I'm not sure I knew that. Let me think about this. 20, 30, 40, 50, 68. Um, yeah, 46 or 47, yeah. Yeah, and she had previously had some mild success on, on Checker by way of Willie Dixon. Right, she had had, well, Wang Dang Doodle, her sing, which exactly. was a single, which was one of the last blues records that got national play on black-oriented radio stations because they were turning away from that kind of music. It was considered old-fashioned music, but that was a big record. Right. She had toured a lot behind that, playing primarily for black audiences, but by the time I met Coco, she was back to working a day job. She was a cleaning woman. Right. And a nanny on the North Shore in Glencoe. And the reason I met her was she was very friendly with a guitar player named Mighty Joe Young, who was a Delmark artist uh, and, a, and a wonderful guy. Uh, I, I Joe I played uh, rhythm guitar on, on uh, a, a couple of my albums, including Coco's first album. And she would they were friends, so she would come down and sit in with him. And she would do a couple or three songs. Well... One of the the smartest things I ever did was in sometime in early 1971, I went to see Hound Dog Taylor and I said, you know, we've sold enough of this record, so I owe you royalties. And then I sat down. He didn't have a bank account. So I sat down with a pile of cash and paid some hundreds of dollars in royalties to him. Uh, I have no idea how much it was, but I have every confidence that within 30 seconds after that, that every single blues musician in Chicago knew that this guy paid this, the hippie paid royalties. And once it was learned that I paid royalties, my status changed amongst the musicians changed completely because many of them had made singles for companies where they maybe got on the jukebox or on the radio, but they had never seen any additional money. Sure, they got 20 bucks and a bottle of Jack or something like that. Well, it might not have been quite that bad, but you know, Muddy Waters said something to the effect of, Chess may have cheated me on royalties, but they gave me a career. Um, now, I, now, let me say clearly, I have no idea whether Muddy Waters' royalty accounting was perfectly honest or not. Um, the I've never known uh, a musician, even an alligator musician, who didn't question whether the royalty accounting was correct. Um, even if they believed in somebody like me, they will wonder, well, you know, could I, could I be getting cheated? And, of course, the only way they could find out would be to pay for an expensive audit, so they never do it. So were I wanting to cheat somebody, yeah, I could do it. But then I have a problem, and the problem is up there on my bulletin board. See the picture of that woman? Yes. The middle-aged white woman? That's Lillian Shad McMurray. 
Lillian Shadmcbury was the proprietor of Trumpet Records in Jackson, Mississippi from 1949 to 1955. And along with Bob Kester, she's my other mentor. Uh, Lillian produced and recorded Sonny Bill Williamson. She produced the original version of Dust My Broom by Elmore James. She managed Sonny Boy. She, she produced most of the records herself. Almost our entire roster was black. She was white and a woman. It was pretty much unheard of. And she was a successful business person. She was a great producer. She was an occasional songwriter. I mean, she produced Mighty Long Time by Sonny Boy and Eyesight to the Blind and Nine Below Zero. I mean, these are, these are records that, uh, you know, they were made now, what, uh, uh, when, how long ago was 1955? Um, 60 some years ago. Um, and they sound great. Absolutely great. When I met Lillian in 1994, and when I went, I, I knew her over the phone and we were corresponding, but I went to visit her in Jackson and her house was full of file cabinets. And I asked her why she had so many file cabinets. And she said, every six months I do royalty statements for every uh, trumpet artist and every Globe Music, that was her publishing company, writer. And most of them I've long since lost. But if their heirs ever show up and can prove that they're their heirs, I know exactly how much I owe them. And she did that right up to when she died. Wow. So Lillian was the most honest person I ever knew. So Lillian hangs above my my desk. And if I ever think about cheating anybody, Lillian jumps down and slaps me. <laughs> you know, you can't cheat somebody in front of Lillian McMurray. Right. <laughs> Uh, to return to Coco for a moment. Oh, sorry. If, oh, no, no. Easily diverted. But if you signed her in the mid-70s, and that's also around the time where if you had started Alligator at that point, you might have failed because of that switch toward album-oriented radio. What about Coco? Was, what about that time in 1975 moving forward allowed her to become Queen of the Blues? It sounds like there are factors working against her. There were a lot of factors working against all of my artists. Um, you know, Hound Dog Taylor died in 1975. And at that point, I had I had five albums out, uh, um, two of them by Hound Dog, uh, one by Fenton Robinson, the debut album by Sun Seals, and one by the wonderful harmonica player, Big Walter Horton. Walter's record, Sun's record, and Fenton's record probably sold enough to break even. Only Hound Dog's two records were making money for the company. And by making money, I mean, for example, enough so I could pay my rent for my, <laughs> at that point, I I moved up from my one-room apartment where I started the label to a two-room apartment. Okay. And and uh, I was uh, pay, trying to pay myself $100 a week. And only Hound Dog's records were selling. When Coco first approached me about recording, because she approached me, not the other way around, I didn't want to sign her. I knew she was a great talent, but I thought, I know how to produce guitar players and harmonica players because they can show the band what they want to hear on their instruments. Coco's a stand-up singer. She doesn't play an instrument. This is going to need producing skills that I don't have. The second part of this was the vast majority of my audience is men. How are they going to respond to a female artist? They respond to male artists, you know, who, who among, you know, amongst the, the, the British invasion acts was, you know, other than Janis Joplin, who were who the women in this music that rock fans knew? And the answer was pretty much nobody. And then she doesn't play an instrument. 
And with the exception of Mick Jagger, you know, you've got guitar slingers, you've got occasional harmonica slingers, you don't have stand-up singers. Um, so I was scared of producing her. I was scared of the fact that she was a woman. I was scared of the fact that she was a stand-up singer. All of these things pushed me not to record her. But Coco was very politely persistent. And <laughs> I had given her my phone number. Um, and uh, for the one phone line I had. Uh, well, I was, the, I was the whole staff, so there was no sure. reason to put anybody on hold, <laughs> you know, to, to talk to anybody else. So um, Coco asked me if I could book some dates for her. Now, I was booking all the alligator artists at that time. There were no booking agents working for my artists. I wasn't very good at it, but I had to do it. So I did. So I offered Coco to some of the clubs that I was booking pretty regularly around the Midwest, and they were all willing to try her. But, you know, I, I said to Coco, you know, you don't, you don't have a regular band at this point. You're sitting in with Mighty Joe Young, and you have a vehicle. And she said, if you'll book me, I'll take care of that. And the next week she called me and she said, I just made a down payment on a new van. And I put together a band. Here's the personnel. We've already had two rehearsals. And when you call, I'll be ready to go. And I was very impressed by this woman who took care of business. She didn't ask me for any money. She didn't ask me for any help. She was doing it herself. And, and that made an impression. Then I sent her out to do some gigs. And she was very well received. And finally, I thought, the momentum is moving in this direction. I guess I'm recording Coco Taylor. The first record we did with Coco that Mighty Joe Young, bless his heart, helped on a lot, helped me be more of an arranger than I really am, um, didn't sell very well. Um, it was called I Got What It Takes, um, and, and it's a very good record, but we didn't get much response to it for all of those reasons. But Coco kept being booked, and we sold enough of it maybe to break even, and I decided I'd take a chance on one more record with Coco. And it, it, I was really hesitating because she wasn't the queen of the blues. She was just out there being a female artist. Right. And, and we did a record called The Earth Shaker that included uh, a song that she wrote, I'm proud to say at my suggestion, called I'm a Woman, which became a blues, female blues anthem, just as I hoped it would be. And, um, and we did a remake of Wang Dang Doodle. And, not knowing it was going to become a standard, we did a uh, Floyd Dixon song called Hey Bartender, which became known later by the Blues Brothers, but was just a good song that I happened to to bring to her. Um, and and uh, we made a record that has really stood the test of time. And that was the record, the second one, that got the best response. And we still maybe have sold more of that than any other Coco Taylor album. I'm so happy I asked you about her because that just makes me love Coco Taylor so much more than I already did. Coco was uh, Coco was the salt of the earth. She was one of the most directly spoken people mm -hmm. I ever knew. If Coco was mad at you, you knew it instantly. And if Coco loved you, you were welcome. You could come and sleep on her couch for the rest of your life. Um, you know, you were either part of the family or you weren't. Uh, Coco was very hard on her band. But if they were any one of them got in trouble, she was there to rescue them, including bailing them out of jail, helping the couple she had to put through rehab, um, all kinds of things. And Coco was there like their mother. But boy, if they didn't play the music right, she'd shove me out of the dressing room 
close the door, and I'd hear Coco using words that she would never use in public, you know, telling the band exactly what she thought about, you know, you speeded up that song and you slowed down that song and watch my foot because that's where the beat is. And she would stomp out the beat while she sang uh, very consistently. Uh, Coco, Coco ran her band really with an iron hand and in a very old school way. I remember I came to her once. I was managing Coco, and I came to her once and said, you know, I, uh, Coco, I, I kind of think the band deserves a raise. You know, you're making okay money now, and the band has had a raise in a couple of years, and, and she just went off on me. You don't tell me what to pay my band. That's my business. You're not, you don't get in my business. And she fired me as her manager. Wow. It was on a transatlantic flight, and we were coming back, or we are going to Europe for a tour. And I would go with her for most of the overseas tours because Coco struggled to read and write and foreign languages were really hard for her. You know, she had dropped out of school in the third grade to work like so many of the musicians I knew in the South. And luckily by the end of the flight, she had rehired me as long as I wouldn't talk to her about what the band made anymore. And then she gave him a raise. Wow. <laughs> uh, was there ever a point in Chicago's blues history, 1970 to now, that you were worried about the genre, that you were worried whether or not it would persevere, that it would connect with a different generation, that it would continue? I think the answer is always. Okay. Um, when I started, there was no blues on the north side. There were no white blues clubs. Now, in the mid-60s, there had been places in on Well Street and places in the Rust Street area. There were basically folk clubs that booked occasional blues, you know, Big John's and Mother Blues and the Fickle Pickle in particular. But when I got here, all the music had moved back into the ghetto. And on a Saturday night, there might be 40 places on the south side and the west side that you could hear a blues band. And probably 30 of them wouldn't even have a sign in the window, much less any advertising or anything like that. They were just little local joints. Most of them, just like any other Chicago neighborhood bar, 25 feet long, 75, 25 feet wide, 75 feet long, hold about 120 people, no stage, you know, move a couple tables, put a band on the floor, plug a microphone into a guitar amplifier, that's the PA system, and they'd play. The bigger places had PAs, the, the ones that were real music clubs. But they were a lot of them were pretty rough, pretty rustic. Not necessarily rough, scary. Rough around the edges. You know, they couldn't have. They were not nicely decorated. Sure. You know, there were there were they were poor people's bars. You know, the patrons were poor people. They were working class people and people who did labor jobs. You know, the jobs that people who came up from the south who had dropped out of school in third grade could do. Right. You know, people with willing backs and willing minds, but but not with a lot of, of skills, especially reading and writing skills. Um, so uh, those, that was, those were wonderful clubs because people shared the music. It wasn't a presentation. It was, I'm from Greenville, the guy on the, sta the stage or in the area where, where the band is, right. is standing is from Greenville. We both heard most of these songs when we were growing up. You know, I'm dancing with people who are from Greenville and we all have all these understandings in common. We all have picked cotton. We all have driven tractors. Uh, you know, we all have had to drop out of school in third grade. We're all bonding, sharing this music. In probably early 1971, Blue started to move on to the north side a little bit. First at a club called the Wise Fools Pub on Lincoln Avenue. 
Um, and then down the street at the first original Kingston Mines, which was a theater with a coffee house in the front. The coffee house had blues. And then a club called Elsewhere, which became Blues on Halstead. Um, and and uh, white people who would not, for the most part, come to the ghetto clubs because they were scared, um, began coming out to hear blues. And the musicians discovered they could maybe make more money on the north side than on the south side. So getting those north side gigs became important. Plus, those were the avenue toward getting gigs out of town. You know, if you played on 43rd Street, the chances were that next week you'd play on 43rd Street. If some college student from Appleton, Wisconsin, saw you at the Wise Fools Pub, you might be playing the next week in Appleton, Wisconsin for more money. So it was a good idea to play on the north side. Right. As the scene in the ghetto faded, and it happened fairly quickly because the patrons of the blues clubs in, in the South Side and West Side were older people. You know, blues was not getting played on black radio in Chicago to speak of. It was considered grandpa's music. And uh, the result was that rather quickly, blues clubs on the, on the Southwest and West Sides started closing through the late 70s into the 80s and the 90s, less and less clubs. At the same time, rock radio, which had briefly embraced blues, was turning away from blues. So there wasn't really a medium for turning on more fans easily. It was supportive. We, you know, we got stories in, occasionally in Rolling Stone and places that were influential, which isn't very true now. Now there's just too much media and no media actually creates much in the way of music sales. Right. Um, I'm scared right now. I'm scared because it's very hard for a specialized label like mine to make money um, because music is being more and more consumed uh, as online streams, which pay virtually nothing. Um, because record stores where people discovered our music, especially adult consumers, have essentially disappeared. Uh, and the discovery process has been cut way down. So I'm constantly battling for the survival of this music and, and the growth of the music. Part of what I have to do is I have to have my ears open to musicians who are using the tradition as a launching pad and who are trying to do something different from the blues tradition. I love traditional blues. I can listen to 12-bar, three-chord blues all night long and be happy. But I'm very aware of the fact that I'm an old guy now. And for somebody your age... That musical vocabulary may seem boring or repetitive, and the beats that are are particular to blues are not contemporary beats. Well, when I went to Florence's Lounge or everywhere on the south and west sides, people were dancing because the beats were dance beats. So blues today should have danceable beats that people who are 20 right. years old understand. Um, blues doesn't need to have three chord changes. Or 12 bars. It needs to feel like blues. Exactly. It needs to tell blues. The lyrics need to tell blues stories. But if we try to recreate what's already been brilliantly done, blues will get frozen in amber and will become a museum piece. Uh, there is a lot of pressure in the blues clubs on the north side to perform familiar songs. And most of those familiar songs are 40, 50, 60 years old. Sure. And at, at one of the clubs... The artists are told they must perform a certain number of uh, familiar songs. Uh, 
You know, they have to perform Hoochie Coochie Man. They have to perform Stormy Monday. They have to perform Sweet Home Chicago, of course. They have to perform Got My Mojo Worker. They can do other things, but they have to do those because they're looking to the tourists. Sure. Who are going to be, you know, the, the customers. Well, for an artist coming up in Chicago in the local clubs and the Northside clubs, fighting to perform your own songs is can be a very much an uphill battle. You know, um, I, we record Toronto Cannon. I released his first album after he did two on Delmark and one self-released album. I released his first album uh, early last year. And Toronto came up through the ranks. He started as a jammer. Then he became a sideman in a not very good band. Then a sideman in a better band. Then he got a few gigs on his own. It took him a long time to even think about writing songs. And then his early writing was very prosaic, very much new songs that sounded like old songs. And it took a long time for him to feel the necessity to make his own expression and create his own songs and to do something different with them. And then it helped that I was there as his producer to encourage him to take chances and not mm-hmm. to do the same old thing. Because when he recorded for Delmark, it was still whatever he came to the studio with was what they were going to record. When I started working with Toronto, we did six months of meetings, one night a week, working on his songs together before I said, before I told him I'd record him. <laughs> he just said, will you help me with my songs? And we had such a good time doing it that I just kept wanting to help him every week. And we'd get together on Tuesday or Thursday night, you know, and order in food and in my house and work on songs. Wow. And, uh, and usually the work was not my suggesting chords or, or lyrics. I did a few, a little of that, but saying that's too familiar. I knew where that song, where that was going. I knew where that, what the rhyme was going to be. Surprise me. And I threw down the gauntlet and he picked it up, but. A lot of artists don't pick up the gauntlet. A lot of artists want to do what's safe. Um, I can enjoy, like I said, I can enjoy traditional blues all night long. But I know that if this music is going to have a future, it's got to keep redefining itself. But keep feeling as though it's part of the flow of the tradition. So if you remember, maybe you this you had this coming through school where they had those silhouettes called the ascent of man where right. you'd see you know the chimpanzee and the orangutan and then you know the um the the chroman the neanderthal and the chromanian and eventually getting to, to contemporary humans well the the flow of blues is like that if you say i started it there's nothing that that is the tradition I'm coming out of, then you're you're denying that the music you're you're performing is blues. And even if it sounds like blues, if you're in denial, then you don't deserve to be called a blues musician, and you don't deserve to have all those wonderful blues musicians, all those silhouettes of you know of Howlin' Wolf and BB King there behind you. you know, one of the things I love about Toronto is he talks, he venerates all of those musicians who came before and is thrilled that he is considered to be part of that flow. Sure. Uh, and and th- those are the musicians I want on the label, not recreators, but creators who create with one foot in the tradition and one foot in the future. Sure. There's a difference between being influenced and understanding the lineage of your craft and being derivative. And I think you're looking for the former. Um, yes. Although I can, 
with the musicians who are still grounded in what I call the blues culture, the people who grew up in the South or grew up in the blues clubs here, uh, who've been listening to blues their whole lives, I can take a good deal of derivative because it mm. comes with blues soul. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but when I, um, when I listen to somebody younger, I want vision. Sure. In 2016, I was reading an interview, you were talking with the Chicago Ambassador, and they asked you about uh, the state of the blues in the city of Chicago, and you remarked about how uh, Chicago doesn't necessarily do as much as it could to help the blues community to thrive, uh, that that counted for people not knowing where historical clubs even were, that there wasn't really a directory offered to them, that the blues clubs that do exist have to deal with lots of really weird regulations and stipulations just to stay open, uh, and also that there might not be a whole lot of opportunity for blues artists, even though there's a Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events that apparently has a music office, but it's unclear whether or not they do stuff with the blues. Well... Let me say first that what Chicago does that's different from every other city in the country is it puts on the world's largest free blues festival. Yes, you also, done, you also referenced and has, that. And has done that for, what, over 30 years now? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I should know the first year. I was the chair of the first talent committee for the first festival. And I've been in an advisory committee position ever since uh, after they hired somebody who knew something about blues. So that's great. And they actually lose money on the festival and they do it anyway. And that's wonderful. So for three days a year, Chicago celebrates its blues tradition in a way that no other city does. And for 362 days a year, it does almost nothing. Um, it would be wonderful if the, even if tourists could find the clubs, if, if the, the, the historical markers would be great. Uh, the idea that the city might actually get involved in some blues education through the school system. I know, you know the Chicago school system is completely right. broke, you know, but I can dream. Uh, right. Or, or perhaps, uh, you know, even do things like uh, put on free street performances you know, during during the warm months of the year, you know, just put up a, a roof and put somebody out in front of the Tribune Tower, you know, on l- at lunch hour, uh, you know, things as simple as that would be great. Um, the the city of Memphis makes a big deal about its its musical heritage, um, and of course, you know, blues and Elvis, um, and Atlanta does some of that, um, and there are other cities, and Chicago doesn't. I don't even know if the music office is staffed right now. It was created, and it seems to have gone from being active to being invisible. Uh, Now, I should say, Mark Kelly, the new director of cultural affairs and special events, is a huge blues fan, is very determined to bring this music back into the neighborhoods and not force people to come downtown for their blues festival. And hopefully the city won't grind him down because dealing with bureaucracy is very hard. Uh, your the club owners, you know, have a terrible time because the inspection regimen here is very haphazard. One inspector will come and say everything's fine. The next year, the same electrical system that was just fine isn't, um, even though nothing has changed. Or you know, the exit signs aren't right. Or there's a problem with the capacity, or any number of other things. Right. Um, so it's very hard for music club owners to survive. 
How do you feel about the Blues Museum that they want to put downtown? Because again, the I mean, it's interesting that it's acknowledging the culture, but it's also forcing people to go back downtown to go to a paid museum to see it. Well, I don't know because I don't know what it's really going to be. Right. Um, it's, it's pie the, in the sky right now. They're talking about how they want to have a they want to have a club and they want it to be like seven stories. So it, it sounds like it could be really cool. Perhaps I've met when these. When the people who were very nice were first starting to talk about this, I had a meeting with them. This was when they were talking about, um, what is it, Block 37? Is right. that the downtown? Mm-hmm. That was their first location. Then the Navy Pier thing and now uh, Washington Street. And I think they may have considered one other location. I was worried that they were too ambitious. You know, One of the things I know about blues is blues recordings are less than 1% of the music sold in the United States. And I'm not sure how many Chicago tourists are going to be aware enough of blues to want to go to a blues museum. And then is it going to be an entertaining, fun experience that they'd want to tell their friends about? Museums don't have a good rep for for being fun. <laughs> um, now, Museum of Science and Industry can be great fun. and Many of the museums here can be fun. Certainly. Uh, you know, I go back to the aquarium almost every year because I just it. I love looking at, at the the various sea creatures, and it's 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 fun. Sure. But music museums have struggled. Experience Music Project lost money. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame lost money. Uh, I'm worried that if they try to do something too big, that they'll fail. And their failure will be seen as a symbol that blues is dying in Chicago. So there's a lot resting on this. And I don't know how smart these people are. Um, the I don't know what, what you compare. I don't think you can compare the Stax Museum in Memphis. I don't know what the comparison is. There's a National Blues Museum in St. Louis that was started in, I believe, in a building that was owned by the city and was I believe they got it rent-free. I don't know how they're doing. Um, okay, I hope. Um, and there are, there are other attempts. You know, there have been, there are some blues museums in the Delta. If this fails, it's going to, it's going to look really bad. Right. Um, and the for-profit aspect means that they're not going to get donations. Sure. I own Hound Dog Taylor's two guitars. At some point, I'd like to give them to somewhere where they'd be exhibited, but I'm not going to give them to a for-profit museum. Right. Exactly. I So uh, I'm hopeful but scared at the same time. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. Because, again, do you think there is a – systemic issue with bringing that into the touristy areas into the south loop and not in the neighborhoods that it came from boy that's that's as much a philosophical or sociological question as it is a it's certainly as a, yeah as a business i think it makes every bit of sense to put it in the loop yeah uh because tourists you know people aren't that much happier about going from the loop to 43rd street now than they were in 1970. Sure. Now, I should say that in all my nights in in the South Side and West Side Blues Clubs, I only had a couple of bad experiences. Um, and, and one bad experience on the street. Now, I won't... People always said, the clubs are friendly, but keep your eyes open on the street. And I had somebody break into my car, and it was clear they didn't steal the car, they tore up the car, and then left it. 
because I was going to ask you about that. It's, it's in in the early seventies, especially, you were a young white guy going into predominantly black neighborhoods. Did they understand that you, that you wanted to help embrace that aspect of well, their culture? Well, they understood I had I hadn't wandered in off the street. Okay, you know, and then I wasn't coming to my neighborhood bar. They knew that I was had come there because of the music. Right. So even before anybody, before I was making records, before anybody knew who I was, the musicians thought. Oh, well, I've got a fan from outside of the area. I'd better make sure that fan has a, a nice experience because the last thing you want to hear is, oh, yeah, I went down to Josephine's and, uh, you know, to see Magic Slim and I got mugged. You know, I'll never right. go there again. Um, so, you know, Magic Slim comes up to you at the set, uh, set break and says, let me know when you're leaving. I'll walk you to your car, you know, or something like that. Right. Um, uh, people mostly came up to tell me how safe I was. Sometimes that was followed by, so will you buy me a drink? But, you know, I mean, that's, you know, going to, chasing after a drink by being nice is not something that has racial aspects to it. No. Um, I was only threatened three times. Um, and in two of those three instances, I'm quite sure that they wanted to see if they could scare the white boy. They, it was an, it was a matter not of wanting to hurt me, but wanting to be empowered because their boss was a white guy. The guy who'd run the, the plantation they had worked on in the South was a white guy. People who had money were white guys. So they wanted, uh, you know, to, to scare somebody who was in a position of power because it empowered them. The third time was somebody I knew and, um, a musician who was really drunk and later apologized to me. And he was, I knew he had a screw loose, um, but we'd always gotten along really well. Um, and we got along well after that. But when the knife came out that particular day, we were not getting along well at all. Right. Um, but for the most part, you know, I have, these two front teeth are false teeth. They were knocked out in a bar fight. It was a bar fight in Oshkosh, Wisconsin with a white guy. <laughs> in all my time going to the South side and the West side, I have not a single tiny scar, but I have, you know, lost teeth because of, of, of some big white guy. <laughs> so, you know, alcohol and fighting tend to go together. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, I learned that the hard way. I wasn't, by the way, uh, I, I didn't know we were having a fight. I thought we were having an argument. He knew we were having a fight. Okay. So I wasn't actually defending myself. <laughs> and after my teeth were knocked out, which was in the first blow, I had, was in no mood to defend myself. Sure. I was in the mood to go to the hospital. Absolutely. Uh, I had a couple other questions for you before we wind down. Uh, this one is entirely anecdotal, but I'm just curious. Uh, one of the acts that, that, much to the amusement of some people around you, that you turned out at the time. Oh, there have been many. But in particular, Steve Ray Vaughan. True. Why? I just, this is, I thought he this was is a self-serving question. I just want to know. Oh, I'll give you a straight answer. I thought he was the world's loudest Albert King imitator. He probably thought he was, too. They played together. Well, yeah, but when yeah. I heard Stevie in probably 1979, first of all, I had not recorded any white people, and I was pretty determined not to mm -hmm. uh, because I didn't think that was the real thing. Um, and I knew all his licks, and I didn't hear the other thing. I didn't hear or feel the passion that I later came to appreciate in his music. It wasn't so much that I thought, I mean, Stevie would have said that he was, that almost everything he played was derivative. And 
And, you know, he had a, a wide vocabulary, but as I got to know Stevie later on, he hated talking about himself, but he loved talking about other musicians. And in a minute, he'd be talking, if you said, you know, uh, well, what do you think of Albert King? He'd talk for half an hour about Albert King or about Lonnie Mack or about even Clarence Holloman or Roy Gaines or John Lee Hooker or, you know, any one of a number of other people um, because he knew how many of his licks came from those people. Right, uh, and he was modest about his own talents, especially about his vocal talents. Sure, and even his stage presentation was derivative to an extent. You know, the behind the behind the back, the behind the back guitar playing was Buddy Guy before it was him, and well, it was Guitar Slim before it was Buddy Guy. Exactly. You know, Buddy Guy once famously said to his to his son uh, that you know his son came to him and said, you know, Jimi Hendrix sounds a lot. Uh, you sound a lot like Jimi Hendrix, and he said, no, son. Jimi Hendrix sounds a lot like your dad. (laughs) Well, sure. I mean, Hendrix had a wide blues vocabulary. Um, As far as the stage tricks, I mean, they say that Charlie Patton in the Delta in the 20s would would throw his guitar up in the air and catch it and would play with his feet. Sure. And, you know, any kinds of tricks. You know, show business is show business. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't uh, uh, begrudge Stevie his his stage show. Keep the people paying attention. That's Mm -hmm. fine. As long as you don't, destroy the music doing it. I mean, right. I know some people from the show, you know, overpowers the music. Um, right. And I don't, that's, that's not what I like. Um, but yeah, I made a mistake. I've made other mistakes in not signing people. And occasionally I've made sta- mistakes in signing people. Sure. Uh, but I try to have bigger ears now than I did then. Now, having run an independent record label now for all these years, decades, through many different uh, eras of po- popular music there's always the trope of the independent record label in contemporary in the contemporary music industry of uh of it's it's hard to get it's hard to get records pressed you're not selling physical stuff everything's being streamed and that's all very true but it's but it seems like alligator has managed to persevere through a lot of that why do you think you guys have what about what about you and Alligator and what you've been doing here and the music you've been playing and recording uh, has allowed it to weather so many storms. Because there's a lot of storms over 40 plus years. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, and actually, I will say that it is probably the hardest right now that it has ever been in my career. The hardest for the longest time. Um, obviously, the strength of our music, the timeless character of the music, um, the fact that people are still discovering how Doug Taylor you know, uh, uh, you know, 46 years later. Uh, and the, the fact that the musicians have had such long performing careers, because I don't sign anybody who's not prepared to be out there on the road, uh, and out there on the road a lot, because that's how people get turned on to music. There's nothing like a great live performance to make a lifelong fan. I'm still a Fred McDowell fan. Um, and, uh, and branding, which I, a word I didn't know when I started the label, but I did start the label thinking, I'm going to make records that I like. And hopefully if people see this funny little alligator, they'll say, well, I have three other records on that label that I liked. So I'm going to trust the label to bring me music that I like. And I'm going to buy at least to some extent based on what, what the label is. Um, and, uh, by not getting very far from that, my original brand, 
you know, I, I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that virtually anybody that I have recorded wouldn't love Hound Dog Taylor uh, and wouldn't be happy to say, yeah, I'm part of that tradition. Sure. Um, so certainly the, the brand is part of it. Part of it is that I hate to fail. Uh, part of it is that I'm surrounded by 14 absolutely terrific employees, some of whom have been here over 30 years, who just bust ass and get absolutely no appreciation for the fact that they're working tremendously hard every day behind the scenes to get us radio play, to get us press, to get our music in what stores remain, to get our music streamed more, uh, you know, to, to deal with the download stores, to deal with new media, um, as well as just things like to keep the books balanced or design covers sure. or any of those things. Um, so uh, the, the staff, I've had great staffers and the, the staff is, is um, it has been the se- part of the secret weapon. Right. Um, I work all the time. Um, you know, I'm, I'll be working later tonight after we finish this interview. Uh, I work on weekends. You know, I work, I've, um, I haven't had anything that anybody would call a vacation, uh, in over 30 years. Um, I've had some long weekends, uh, but actually going somewhere for the fun of it. No, I don't do that. Uh, I can't get too far from the company. If I took a vacation, all that would happen is I'd be working till midnight every night for the month following the vacation, trying to get caught up. Right. Um, but I don't begrudge. I'm not angry or upset about that. I'm upset when the music, when the, the work has nothing to do with music and has to do with business because I never wanted to be a businessman. I'm stuck being a businessman so I can do the music. To close out, as we look forward to the entire new generation of blues performers, uh, you you have you know performers booked like uh, or on your roster, you know the likes of Shamika Copeland, who took over essentially the Queen of the Blues moniker from Coco, uh, who officially you, declared by Coco's officially daughter. declared by Cookie. Uh, is there is there uh, which actually which type of artists are you looking at going forward that you're excited about? Well, the artists, the young artists on the label, um, you know, besides Shamika, who is not as young as she was, but you remember I first recorded her when she was 18. Right. Uh, something I'm very proud of. I followed my gut. You know, <laughs> she, I, I knew her whole career would have to be developed, but there was something there that was just undeniable. Um, Selwyn Birchwood, whose new album is coming out next month from Florida, um, who is with the new album is really pushing the envelope. Um, but started, you know, uh, uh, coached by uh, an old blues man named Sonny Rhodes, uh, who was his mentor and influenced by Buddy. Uh, Jerika Singleton from, from Jackson, who came up through hip hop and then heard Albert King and somehow meshed these two things together. Um, and although he's not young, Toronzo Cannon, who is still coming into his own as a writer and a performing artist, and I think has a, has a great future, you know, at the age he's now 49. So, you know, blues musicians don't retire. They just perform till they die. Right. So, uh, so he's probably got, you know, another 30 or 40 good years of performing <laughs> in him. Um, but I'm always looking for people with a vision. Um, I, you know, I've signed some artists who have not been 
anything like traditional blues artists uh, like Eric Lindell and Anders Osborne and J.J. Gray and Mofro, who are blues influenced, who would never call themselves blues musicians, who, who would not say they walk in the tradition of Hound Dog Taylor, but they're proud of the influence of Hound Dog Taylor. And that's because I feel their souls, too. Right. Uh, and because they can communicate with an audience that uh, that some of my other artists maybe would have a harder time communicating with. Uh, but boy, if they, if any of those guys got slick on me, I'd drop them in a second, you know, um, the, uh, you know, we're the anti-slick label, right? You know, we love the rough edges. <laughs> I think that's a really good way to end it. Again, my name is Brett Stewart. I have been your host on this episode of Exploring the Blues in Chicago. Many thanks to both of my interviewees for taking time to sit down with me and talk about the blues. It means the world, and these conversations were so compelling to have. They were so long. Believe me, I wish I could just release the entirety of these conversations. But we got to keep these podcasts somewhat concise. They're really wonderful. I hope you found them compelling and insightful. I sure know that I did. Now, the next episode, which is already out on your feed because we did release all of these episodes together at the same time, is a discussion with artists here in the city, particularly Frank Bang and Derek Brosell, two blues artists in Chicago that are in the contemporary scene. We talk about their history in the scene, what it's like being a blues musician in the city, what it's like to be part of that community, the trials and tribulations and triumphs of all of that, much, much more. They are great, great conversations I would highly recommend tuning into. Thank you so much. You can find me on Twitter at Rivers Rubin. Send me a message on Twitter or follow me on my website, brettdavidstewart.com. As always, everything you heard today will be in the show notes of the program. Thank you very much. 